Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word handy, would you be turning to Matthew chapter 27? If you would like a head start, you can be turning to Matthew chapter 27. We are so thankful that you are with us this morning. I don't know how many of you had to brave the snow as we did. I think it was snowing on top of the mountain when we came over, um, but made it safely. It wasn't that dangerous, but it was just a little unbelievable that it was snowing uh, this Sunday morning. But we are thankful that you are here and that we can spend some time together uh, both in fellowship and in studying God's Word and in worship together. Uh, We are thankful to those who have led us so far, to Stephen for the wording of the prayer. Thankful to Robert, as we usually are when Robert uh, even taking time to put together a series uh, on the Lord's Supper. And even though he doesn't present it week to week, back to back, but he had thought about that and planned that out. And, of course, Robert's heart is evident uh, in his sharing of that with us, and we appreciate him leading our thoughts in that way. We appreciate Don leading singing, even though he always leads that it won't be very long before the sermon starts. Uh, It's the only time that he leads that song. Uh, Hannah had messaged me or said something right before service started. She said, I'm worried about the potatoes. And just a reminder again that we'll be eating lunch if you'd like to stay for lunch. And then our 1.30 afternoon service, we'd love to invite you. We're having a potato bar this afternoon for lunch. So I'm worried about them getting done. I said, well, I can preach longer. Uh, that was one way to take care and make sure that they're done. But uh, I won't, after Don leaves, it won't be very long. So, uh, But we're, we're grateful for all those who have led us and for you and being a part of that with us this morning as we uh, can worship together first and foremost. But then again, please be a part of any and all of the rest of our afternoon together. I'd like to share with you this morning a lesson, or the lesson, I guess, that I presented about a month ago at the Fried Hardeman Lectures. I was very thankful to be asked to present a, a message, and it was a part of a series uh, that began on Monday and went through Thursday. I was the last lesson on Thursday. It was entitled, Where is God? And the first lesson dealt with the idea of where is God in Esther. The lectureship this year was over Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And if you recall, most famously about Esther, that the name of God is not mentioned in that book. So it seemed like a good topic, I'm sure, where is God in the book of Esther, even if his name is not mentioned. But there were several other topics, including where is God when he is silent, and where is God when we suffer. And again, if I can just make one plug, we'd love to have you back at 1.30. If you have a bulletin in front of you and you see the outlines, we're going to continue these thoughts this afternoon as we talk a little bit about where is God when we suffer. And it's going to be a little bit broader and something along those lines. But I was giving the title of Where is God at the Cross? On February the 25th, 2004, 19 years ago, New Market Films and Icon Productions released what would go on in that year to become the fifth highest grossing film of 2004 of that year. It was directed and produced by Mel Gibson. It starred Jim Caviezel, and of course it was entitled The Passion of the Christ. I remember very vividly going to the movie theater to see that movie with my soon-to-be wife and her parents. You know, the joke in our family for a long time was that for a very long time, that was the only movie that my dear father-in-law had ever been to see in a physical movie theater. He didn't go see movies very much, but he went with us to go see The Passion of the Christ. I remember leaving the theater that day, not necessarily scarred, not even really bothered to the point of being physically ill, but I was certainly affected. 
And for some of those reasons, and due to the nature of what is depicted on the screen, I also believe that I have not sat down to watch that movie in its entirety since that day. I often tell of a sermon that I preached once years ago. It was on the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. I tried to be true to the material, but also sensitive to the audience. Perhaps you've heard one of those lessons before. I think David Smith that preaches up the road in North Hamilton has one that he's famously done several times that depicts in vivid detail the suffering of Jesus and the blood loss and the pain and the agony and the anguish. And I, I preached a message once that was kind of in the vein of that sermon. I tried to strike the right balance between truth and, and what would be considered sensationalism. And I don't remember at what point exactly in that lesson, but a lady who was visiting got up and she walked out of the auditorium. Now, I didn't think twice, as any of you who have ever preached before know, people get up from time to time for various reasons to use the bathroom or different things. And so it's not uncommon for someone to get up and walk out during the middle of a sermon. However, afterwards, as I was in the lobby, she approached me to apologize. She said that hearing what was the lesson and hearing what we might call the gory details of what Jesus suffered, she said it always bothered her. Not in the contemplative kind of encouraging way to think about those things, but in the way that she would have trouble sleeping that night after hearing all of those details associated with the crucifixion. I enjoyed Gibson's movie in the sense that it finally, in my mind, put to picture what it might have looked like on that day. Like many of you, I had grown up partaking of the Lord's Supper. I always tried my best to envision the atrocities of that day, but I always struggled to have a true visual of those moments. Now, I'm not here to hold up this movie as the standard or something that every Christian must see. For me, though, it was the chance to finally see a representation of how Jesus suffered, and I appreciated that. But I'll also tell you that I don't think that the $30 million that it took in order to make that movie came close to fully depicting the scene at the place of the skull. I don't think that $300 million could do it true justice. And as much as we might want to turn our eyes away from the horrors, this is perhaps one of the greatest scenes of all time. If you open your New Testaments to the first gospel account that we come to, the gospel according to Matthew, in Matthew chapter 27, we read, the first people we read about at the cross, as the title of our lesson summarizes this location, the first people that we think about who were there are the soldiers, the soldiers of the governor. In Matthew chapter 27, in verse number 27, we see that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they are the ones who stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head with a reed in his hands. They bowed the knee before him and struck and mocked him. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him. They led him away to be crucified. They find Simon the Cyrene. They compelled him to bear the cross. 
They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. They crucified him, divided his garments, casted lots. They put a sign over his head and they sat down and they kept watch over him there. The next two people that Matthew tells us are there are the two robbers. One on the right and the other on his left. Matthew in verse 44 only reveals that they reviled him. We have to go to Luke chapter 23 to read of a conversation that takes place between them. Again, though, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 41, Matthew shares with us that those who are the most influential, who are the most powerful, have gathered as witnesses to this event. The chief priest, the scribes, the elders of the Jewish people have come and are even perhaps the ones who are leading in the mocking. You know, if we were to say that there is one place that everybody wants to be, the place that everybody wants to gather at, this is the place in that moment and the most influential are most certainly going to be there. John chapter 19 verses 25 through 27 shares with us that there are women standing nearby Now, it's not in the purview of our lesson today to debate whether or not John names three or four women. That's a conversation that people sometimes debate because of the listing of the names there in John chapter 19. We know for certain that his mother is there. We could probably fill this auditorium with 100 women in these seats, and we might even get a near 50-50 split as to how many women would be able to stand by And watch such a scene involving their son. And how many women as mothers might have stayed as far away as possible. The disciple whom he loved, that's John, was there by the Lord's mother. Even in his suffering on that tree, Jesus commits them together. And from that moment on, John watches and he cares for her. And it is the physician, Luke who records for us two sobering statements in summation of the crowd that had gathered there at that moment in history. In Luke chapter 23, in verse number 35, Luke says, And the people stood looking on. And later in verse number 48, he says, And the whole crowd came together to that sight. What a sight it was. What a crowd that it was. But though we have listed quite a few people already who were there, there are some who at least according to Scripture, or at least as it appears from Scripture, were not present at the cross. Let's notice together simply Matthew's account of all the events leading up to his death. Beginning in Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 47. You see, after Jesus is betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he stands before the Sanhedrin to be falsely accused. In fact, Matthew says in chapter 26 and verse number 60, even though many, many false witnesses came forward. But it is then before Matthew gets to Pilate and Barabbas and Golgotha that we in chapter 27 in verses 3 through 10 we see that Judas doesn't seem to be at the crucifixion. 
He's not standing away from the crowds. He's not admiring his work at what he had done in betraying the Savior. He is not pleased with himself. Though Matthew tells us he is remorseful, it is not the same remorse or regret that leads to repentance. As Paul discusses in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-12. through 12. No, he is remorseful. But Judas seems to be notably absent from the crucifixion scene because we know that he takes his own life. But also back up before that scene and see where Matthew records for us the well-known story of Peter's denial of his friend, Jesus of Nazareth, in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 69 and through verse 75. We see here in bang, bang, bang succession, denial, denial, denial. Was Peter at the cross? I guess he could have been. But if you're like me, Luke's chilling words in Luke chapter 22 in verse number 61, that as the third denial happens, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. For anyone serious about being a Christ follower, for anyone committed to serving him, those words send chills down your spine. That as he is on trial, he turns and looks at you. We hear the echoes of whispers from Jesus' own lips in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 33 when he says, But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I reckon, I reckon Peter could have been there. But if he was human, as we know he truly was, he may have wanted to stay as far away as possible in embarrassment in regret, in sadness. Now, all that we have said so far is well and good and may be true, at least to the very best of our ability. But if I may use an earthly illustration for just a moment, think about a young boy in your mind who is yearning for his father's attention. He spends every afternoon learning something new, trying to build something, anything to show off to his father when he comes home from work. He spends every day just trying to get five minutes of playtime with his dad. And if you would imagine this hypothetical young man who maybe is playing in a basketball game or a baseball game, and he can hardly make a play because he's too busy looking around, scanning the stands, trying to figure out if his father is there. He's not looking for his friends. He's not looking for his neighbors. It doesn't matter to him if his preacher are there or if his friends are there or his grandparents or even his siblings or his mother. He wants to know where his father is. Is he here? Where is God? Oh, he's everywhere. We sometimes use that fancy word omnipresent. But even though we know that, it is a question that I feel confident has been asked for ages. Some occasions, which I'm too young for, World Wars or Pearl Harbor, or other occasions that I remember, things like 9-11 or national tragedies or the national shooting things that continue to happen in our country. Our task this morning is to attempt, is not to attempt to understand all of those situations though, it is to consider just one. Where is God at the cross? Perhaps what I find the most interesting as I have considered this topic, or maybe better put, what I find most ironic is that we ask this question 
of the one person who can't be lost. We lose our phones. We lose our keys. We lose information we write down. We sometimes say we lose our minds. We might even lose our children. or We might even lose our parents. But we can't lose God. And yet sometimes we ask that question. Where is God? He's everywhere and he's been everywhere. He was in the beginning. He was in the first garden. He was there during the great flood, the ten plagues, Mount Sinai, in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, and so on and so forth. It's not like we can just lose him or, well, I'm, just, I'm not sure where he went. That's not the way that it is with God. We can't misplace him. So where was God at the cross? Was he on vacation? Turning a blind eye? Was he avoiding his son? Where is God at the cross? The short answer is I personally believe he was there. And may I suggest to you this morning three reminders that while we may ask this question in a mocking or questioning tone, we don't have to worry or fear for God was there. First, let's take a look at the words of the Savior himself. Let's listen to Jesus explain to us himself. First, in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 21 through 30. Jesus says in verse 28 that when you lift the Son of Man up, and as he would do when he makes mention of this phrase of being lifted up, he is referring to his coming death. So then he says in John 8 and verse 29, and he... Who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Jesus says the Father is with him. Now, I may be the furthest thing from a Greek scholar, but in listening to what others say and what I am told, that we can even consider the tense of the word that is used here, or the phrase, the phrase is with me, he who sent me is with me, indicates a continued action. And tack on to that phrase that he has not left me, the father has not left me alone, indicates that not at any time was Jesus left alone. Jesus is emphasizing the unbreakable relationship between himself and the father. He has never in the past been alone and the Father would continue to be with him. We go briefly forward to John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. Jesus is speaking again of coming events and of the coming hour. And he says in verse 32 that the hour is coming when they will all scatter. Which is essentially what happens after he is arrested, does it not? His apostles flee and they scatter. And while for any of us to imagine something tragic happening to us and we turn around to the aid of our friends and everyone's just, they're just gone. Each one leaving to care for themselves or to avoid the situation that we might be in. That is how mankind would act. However, Jesus says, as you scatter, as you leave me, as I am no longer surrounded by those who are closest to me here, I am not alone because the Father is with me. 
Jesus makes it plain that even when he is lifted up, and even when others forsake and flee, he is not alone. The Father would continue to be with him. Secondly, though, God was there in the sacrifice. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. As the Apostle Paul so beautifully writes for us in the book of Romans, we see God's infinite love for us, his children. At least three times it is mentioned in this chapter that God the Father and God the Son are connected and especially connected through the act of Calvary. Chapter 8 in verse number 3. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. Chapter 8, verse 17. Famously known by us, beginning in verse 16, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Verse 32. At least three times here, Paul reminds us that God's love was shown in the sacrifice of his own son. He also mentions it in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, we know and adore and love John three sixteen. For God so loved you and me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now we're about to get to the question about forsaking. But as our brother Wayne Jackson once wrote in his commentary, in what way did God forsake his son? And it's perhaps this. He allowed. He allowed him to die. To drink the full measure of suffering upon the cross in order that humanity might have a sacrificial offering for sin. Could the Father have intervened and rescued Christ from the cross? Surely so. But then all of mankind would have been forever lost. The sacri sacrificial offering for sin. God was at the cross in the sacrifice of his son. That he allowed to happen for you and for me. Third and finally this morning we would notice that God was there in the prophecy. He was there in the prophecy. Matthew records for us in Matthew chapter 27 in verse number 45. And following that from the sixth hour 
That is 12 high noon due to the Jews counting the hours beginning with 6 in the morning. That from the 6th hour unto the ninth hour. So from high noon until about 3 in the afternoon. From the 6th hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land. We might say there was a shadow over the land. And about, about the ninth hour Jesus cries out with a megas phone. A megas phone. A megas loud, a phone voice. And of course you hear our word, megas phone, a megaphone. Jesus cries out as if with a megaphone. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this may have been where this lesson is supposed to go. This is the question that so many people ask that we get tripped up on when they contemplate it. And full disclosure here, I do not consider myself a scholar, nor am I prepared to give a detailed answer that I have figured out exactly what Jesus was saying and feeling in that moment suspended between heaven and earth. On the surface, people often consider that Jesus is accusing God of leaving him. Why have you forsaken me? That while he is suffering and hanging there in pain, God has left him, turned his back on him, or turned his face away. And I guess it's true in some sense that Jesus was forsaken by the Father. But I said this was prophecy. And can I ask you to turn once again in your Bibles to the 22nd Psalm. And as you turn to Psalm 22, I said again, because I need to tell you that I did not ask Robert to mention Psalm 22 when he was leading our minds in the Lord's Supper, but he did. And I was amazed and surprised that he did, although I knew that connects here because I didn't tell him to, but he tied it in perfectly for me. What does verse 1 of Psalm 22 say very clearly? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? We hear what we consider the middle statement of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And we instantly think that God is not there. That perhaps the omnipresent God has decided to avoid this particular section of the globe for these several hours on that particular day. But is it possible that those who were standing by, that they knew? That those who were standing by, who knew the scripture, who had heard Psalm 22 read before, who had studied and listened to the Old Testament, that those who were nearby heard him say this and they knew that this was the fulfillment of prophecy. We don't have time this afternoon, this morning, to go through the first 18 verses of this great psalm. But there is more there than just in verse number 1. There is more there to tell us of this prophecy. Look in verse 6. We read how he is a reproach of man, despised by the people. And we hear in our minds the well-known passage from Isaiah 53 and verse 3. In verse 7 of Psalm 22, all who see me ridicule me. And we discussed earlier how he was mocked. Verse 16, pierced hands and feet. Verse 18, divided garments and the casting of lots. Did God 
literally turn his back on Jesus? Or is it possible that this quote, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, is simply Jesus saying, yes, I am he. He that has been spoken of. He that was prophesied about. The only Lamb of God, the Messiah. Perhaps he is calling to the Father with the feeling of isolation. Perhaps he is quoting the scripture to the point to point the way to his place as the Messiah. Perhaps he is quoting the scripture to point the way towards victory, which, by the way, is also discussed at the end of the 22nd Psalm. Where is or where was God? God did not have to be there in the form of jumping in front of him, in front of Jesus to stop what was happening. God did not have to strike dead all of those who were gathered around and take his son off of that cruel, cruel cross. God did not have to call 10,000 angels, though he could have. God was there. He was not nearby, watching from a distance. He was not far away, avoiding the situation. He was not distracted or preoccupied or too busy. We could spend hours debating about how God is holy and can't be near sin. And that Jesus was bearing our sins and what that might mean. But I do believe that God was there as his only begotten son suffered. Probably similar to the way that God is there when we suffer. And let me invite you back one more time at 1.30 as we'll discuss that briefly this afternoon. If I could take us away for one concluding thought from the cross to another great moment in history. A moment when God was there and he was there, there also in absence. I know you remember the awesome scene that's found in 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 27 through 29 of what takes place on Mount Carmel. And I love this passage for so many reasons. But maybe it is my human side that kicks in. And I can appreciate Elijah's sarcasm. We like to use sarcasm sometimes to make a point. The bull, if you remember, is given to the 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah says, go ahead, go ahead. So they take the bull, they prepare it, and they call on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, oh, Baal, hear us. But, but what? But there was no voice. No one answered. And as Elijah in the moment checks his watch, right? He kind of checks the clock and figures that they've had sufficient time. Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is meditating or he is busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he is sleeping and he must be awakened. So they cry and they cut themselves. And when midday was passed, now they've made it to the evening. From the morning until the evening, they've made it. Crying out to Baal. But what? There was no voice. No one answered. And no one paid attention. Friends and brethren, those prophets, those false prophets, those prophets of Baal, they were not calling on Jehovah God. But when Jehovah God was called upon by his man, his selected prophet, the fire rang down. And the scene was impressive 
And the people shouted, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And when we examine the tragic, terrible scene at Calvary, the open wounds, the blood, the pain, the suffering, we do not have to question Him or ask where He is, but maybe instead we should cry out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. From my simple human perspective, from the perspective of a husband and a father, I don't like tragedy. I don't like sickness. I don't like death. But in those hours of trial, I don't have to look around and ask, where is God? I can look back to this very top of the world moments. The top moment maybe in the history of the world as our Savior suffered on a tree. And at Calvary, with those gathered there, I don't have to look around and ask, where is God? For if He was there then, and He always has been there, and is still here now, I can instead praise Him for the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. It's because of the cross, and it's because of Jesus' actions, and God's actions, that we can have salvation. We're about to sing a song that's been selected in just a moment that through its words we might encourage you to enjoy that salvation, to be gospel obedient, to become a Christian, to be added to the church, to be on the path to heaven above. There's not anything here that we do in that regard. We don't vote. We don't choose. We don't select. You simply obey God's simple plan of salvation. And when you're baptized, immersed into the water where you come into the contact with the blood of Christ, your sins are taken away by the blood and the sacrifice of Christ. And the Lord adds you to his church. And you can begin living faithfully. Maybe you're here this morning and you've done that, but you've wandered away. You've struggled in sin. Something has separated you from God and you'd like to come back to him. We are assembled here together as brothers and sisters. One of our elders will be coming forward into the front in just a moment to pray with you and for you. But we're thankful for this opportunity that we can come to him and be a child of God. If you need to make a change, would you do so now as we stand together and as we sing?